Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. This program was recorded at 7 p.m. Beijing time on Friday, October 27th. The situation may have changed by the time you hear this. Three weeks into the Israel-Hamas conflict, more airstrikes have ravaged swaths of the Gaza Strip. Residents are running out of food, water, and other supplies. Israeli ground forces, accompanied by fighter jets and drones, have conducted targeted raids in Gaza and struck dozens of Hamas targets. Israel's military said they were meant to prepare the battlefield for the next stage of the war. Meanwhile, the U.S. military launched two airstrikes against Iranian-linked sites in eastern Syria following a series of attacks against U.S. forces in the region. As an Israeli ground invasion looms, fears grow that the war may escalate into a wider regional conflict. China's special envoy is touring the Middle East with the aim to promote peace talks between Israel and Hamas. The United States is warning against any expansion of the conflict, but has resisted calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. How likely is a larger war in the Middle East, and what can be done to stop it? Joining our discussion today, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Perth, Australia. And Dr. Tim Manderson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Gentlemen, thank you all for being with us. And Dr. Wang, to start with you, with the recent indicators in mind, does it appear that a ground operation is on the horizon? I think it will. Unfortunately, nobody hopes it will happen, but unfortunately, I think it will happen uh, inevitably. Because uh, on the one hand, Israeli suffered a lot uh, from Israeli perspective. They suffered a lot at the very beginning of this round of the conflict. So the social opinion, the public opinion are so angry. They hope for revenge. They hope the government to take, take some measures to retaliate very strongly against the Hamas presence inside Gaza. And on the other hand, Israeli government, especially the government led by Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, is now under the growing pressure from public uh, and social uh, opinion, as well as Israeli uh, security and military intelligences. Uh, so they, they hope to do something to, to meet the demands of the public. So that is why uh, they have already called the, the reserve army uh, and they deployed them in, uh, around the Gaza frontier. And uh, I think it's just a matter of time when this ground operation uh, be finally launched. But, but for sure, I, I, think, uh, no, I think nobody wants that for, but unfortunately it will happen. Okay, so Professor Syracuse, would you agree uh, that a ground operation is 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 likely? Uh, I mean, is inevitable. And if so, what would a potential ground operation look like? Uh, like, is it likely to be an all-out offensive, or might it be more limited, or focusing on areas where Hamas militants are positioned? Well, I'd say that the the ground uh, operation is. Um, is pretty likely, but I also want to say that uh, the Israelis have already done a job on on Gaza. I mean, the Israelis have done in three weeks what what nobody could do since the 15th century B.C., and that's clear out Gaza City. I mean, uh, Gaza City's been inhabited since the 15th century B.C., and the Israelis were able to empty the place out. Now, look, the Israelis don't have to go in hard. They've already just, let's get this straight. They, they destroyed Gaza commercially, financially, economically. Education's gone. Health is gone. I mean, the place is scorched earth. There is nothing that's going to rise from there. And if anybody does, you know, they're going to be in a, uh, it's, it's, it's no man's land. It's, it's a dead zone. I mean, they've already destroyed the place. And as far as a larger war, the United States is at war right now. They drew a, uh, 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 Iranian blood in Syria and uh, the Syria and and the Iranians are on notice that they're going to get a little more of air power and you know you you can fool around with American ground troops but the American way of war is very ferocious and, and I want to say to my guests that I'm 79 years old I was born in 1944 I have seen I was born before the state of Israel was created I have seen this story close up and personal all my life. And I've seen American foreign policy uh, lurch from one extreme to the other. I mean, American foreign policy in the Middle East is bankrupt. 
we've come to the point where there's nothing left to do for the Americans except support the um, uh, support the Israelis. And, and and I'm telling you, these these whatever excuses or whatever justification Israel had to to go into hot pursuit or to destroy uh, Gaza with artillery and with with air power. There comes a point where it doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, once you start to see thousands of children dead, you think, well, they've even up the score a little bit. And even if the Israelis could justify this war under, um, uh, say, the just war principles of St. Augustine, you can't justify what's going on now because it seems to me that the game has changed. Now it's just a killing game. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I'm sickened by what's happened, and I'm and I can see the American administration is squirming here because they know if they don't support Israel, they're going to be attacked in, in domestic politics, and if they support them anymore, the American people, the American people aren't stupid, and even if they are stupid, they can see their television screens, they can see that this, this doesn't make any sense anymore. So the Americans really don't know what to do. Biden doesn't know what to do. I, I think the Secretary of State Blinken knows that this is a lost cause. He'd like to resign, I think, as soon as possible. He doesn't want all those dead children on his, his resume next time he goes looking for a job. So I think uh, my, my two points are America's already at war, okay? Those two aircraft carrier groups there uh, can, can take on anybody. And the Iranians are on notice that they'll be looking at American air power. The U.S. is ready to go into any part of this, this thing. And, and the second thing is that nobody really has a plan B, except the Israelis continue to move forward. And this destruction reaches a point where it, it doesn't make any sense. We're looking at scorched earth. Yes, we will discuss uh, the U.S. policy and uh, the challenges that the Biden administration is facing right now in a short while. But uh, first, let me turn to uh, Dr. Anderson. Uh, do you feel that the Netanyahu government has purposefully delayed a ground of offensive for certain reasons? Because, um, you know, Israeli officials have hinted at ground offensives for weeks, but we haven't seen them yet. So uh, what what could be the reasons that has um, been delaying this ground offensive? They've given a reason, the weather, which is not very plausible, but certainly they've been um, ambiguous about it. Um, I think their pride requires them to go in because they'll be seen as weak if they don't. And one of the things that Netanyahu um, sold himself on was being tough on, on uh, Palestinian resistance. But... Uh, it doesn't look very good for them if they go in. I mean, bombing from the air, you, everyone's seen the, the horrendous consequences of that. It's been clearly mostly civilians that are being killed. Um, the idea of going in is so supposedly they're going to root out Hamas militants in there. But it's much easier said than done. They're, they're going to they're gonna suffer a lot of damage from that. If they go in, there's going to be traps, um, there's tunnels, there's booby traps. Um, the, the, the Palestinian resistance groups there and there's about four of them, Hamas, Hamas is the biggest one, they're ready for this, and, and the Israelis are going to take a lot of damage there. So um, there has to be a, an, an ambiguity there, I think. But as a matter of pride, I think uh, the Israelis are going in. Up until now, they've really been sating a type of bloodlust. It's really been reprisals against civilians for the, the terrible, not just the loss of life, but the the huge uh, damage to their reputation, that they didn't see this coming, that their intelligence failed, that their Iron Dome failed, that their military failed. Uh, I mean, the figures in Israeli media show that most of the people that died on October the 7th were indeed military um, Mm -hmm. soldiers or police. So uh, they're they're suffering a big blow to their reputation. They're trying to salvage it with this idea of a, a ground invasion. Okay, uh, so Dr. Wan, uh, during his recent visit to Israel, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden publicly urged Israel not to repeat the mistakes that the U.S. made after the September 11th attacks. And he said, I quote, while you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it. Another, uh, I mean, after 9-11, we were enraged in the, in the U.S. And while we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. How do you interpret this message? And do you believe there are lessons that Israel should learn from the U.S. mistakes? I think the early lesson that we know from the history is that uh, nobody will uh, learn the history carefully. So everybody will repeat the questions and repeat the mistakes once once and once again. Uh, When uh, when, uh, when, the United States President John Biden compared that Israel is uh, current circumstances with what happened 
after just after 911, uh, terrorist attacks in the United States. He hopes that, uh, I think from, to some extent, I think he hopes to persuade Israel, uh, to prevent from the, the very detailed occupation or the concrete uh, issues inside the Gaza Strip. And also, I think he hopes to persuade Israel to suspend and to some extent to, uh, to, to, to force the very possible lot away the ground for offensive against the Gaza Strip in the future. Unfortunately, because the, the uh, uh, exchange by the work the president in the United States in, in 2001, after now, I think against the very pressure of the United States right, and social opinion at that time, he also made these. He would also make 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 the the very similar decision, uh, just uh, uh, like uh, uh, George W. Bush. And also, I think under the now circumstances, especially uh, when we when we taking when we are taking the, the the what's happening inside Israeli social opinion, social public. Uh, society, uh, I don't think that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu could follow the advices from uh, Joe Biden. So actually, uh, uh, we hope that no war will be erupted and no war will continue. But unfortunately, I don't, I, I don't think this, this kind of advice will uh, take effect. Because the war from especially the very long offensive from Israeli uh, security forces against uh, against the Gaza Strip will be inevitable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Dr. Syracuse, uh, um, you know, Israel has expressed this clear intention to completely eliminate Hamas. Um, I mean, is that goal realistically achievable? And and more importantly, could this d- destruction of Hamas potentially resolve the long-standing issue between Israel and Palestine? Or might it lead to more Palestinian youth joining similar groups in the future? Yeah, I could see what's going on, and Gaza would probably create the next generation of um, of, of anti-Israeli uh, young kids. I mean, this is just kind of the poster for it. Uh, look, um, to, to get about that that war on terror when when Biden and Biden and I are the same age, when he says that America uh, made a mistake, you know, they followed its rage. That's not exactly true. We had options at the time at in cabinet who suggested that we should treat this as a police event rather than as a military crusade. And um, George W. Bush decided to, uh, you know, round up the the Texas Rangers and go charging into Afghanistan. We stayed 20 years and accomplished nothing. Then he, 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 he went into Iraq, not because the American people were enraged. He just lied to the American people. And, you know, the foreign policy establishment went along with it, and the political elite went along with it, and Americans got conned into it. We didn't get involved in those wars in the Middle East or in the, in the wars on terror because we were overly enthusiastic. It's just that the American leaders lied to the American people. And, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson lied to my generation about Vietnam and where we killed two million Vietnamese who didn't fire a shot at us. You know, we've killed a lot of people in places we've been. So it was an old habit for the for the military solution to problems. But it's not a matter of the Israelis sort of uh, following the American lessons. Uh, America can make mistakes, it makes mistakes, and then it plays the game again on Monday morning. Places like Israel, I think, are quite unique here because they're in a confined space with, with with somebody else who says they belong there first. I won't get into the arguments. I don't even know them anymore. I used to know them, but I can't figure out the, the arguments. And so it's not a matter of following uh, America's lessons. It's a matter of how the people involved in the war on terror and the European nations and China and others, how we could uh, we could help uh, Israel uh, get on the out ramp, uh, off-ramp here and help what's left of uh, Palestine. Because I, I heard today that the, the Israelis are, are going after anyone who looks like a sympathizer. They're grabbing people's smartphones. They're looking at their Facebook accounts. And, and they're arresting people who signed like in favor of uh, some some idea that's out there. So, you know, the Israelis are going after everybody, and they don't need much excuse. But this idea that this is a simple mistake, that this is just a, a matter of containing your rage, well, it, it, it's, it's more than that, too, because the Israelis know that uh, this does not end well for anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Anderson, um, I mean, I think a lesson that Israel perhaps should learn from the U.S. mistakes is that um, 
once once Hamas has hypothetically been eliminated, does Israel really have a clear plan in place about what the next steps will be, particularly concerning the governance of Gaza? I don't think there's any sign that there's a clear plan or a clear strategy on the Israeli side. They've been carrying out reprisals, bombing from the air. Um, I think the the Biden comment, without getting lost in the history of U.S. mistakes, um, is really a, a nervousness on the U.S. side that they are concerned about escalation. I mean, everyone's concerned about escalation because escalation by its character is unpredictable. And even though the U.S. might have the biggest bombs and the biggest ships and so on like that, still, they don't want to get involved in something that they can't contain. And the Israelis have been talking very aggressively. Uh, they've been bombing their countries next door. They're bombing Lebanon with white phosphorus. They're bombing Syria. They've been bombing the airports for some time. They're, they're, um, the Israelis are talking about bombing Iran, but Iran is too big for them to take on. And they expect that if a conflict between Iran and the Israelis breaks out, that the US will back them. But I think there's a concern in the US that they don't want to be dragged into something that they're not um, convinced is in their interests, basically. We, we saw this before with in, in the state of Georgia, if you remember, about 15 years ago, where uh, Georgia got into a conflict with Russia and expected um, the US to back them up, and they didn't. Uh, and I think that, that uh, the Biden administration is probably nervous that Netanyahu, who they don't like anyway, there was conflict between Biden and Netanyahu uh, before this, this current conflict, um, that they, they fear that he might drag them into something that's bigger than they actually want to get involved in. Yeah, and, and Dr. Anderson, actually, we have seen um, major protests in cities across the Middle East and also in other parts of the world, especially after the explosion uh, at the Gaza hospital on October 17th. Uh, so do you think it's crucial for Israel to take into account those international sentiment and perceptions? Well, if they were thinking uh, human beings, yes, but really there's not much sign of it. There's a, even on the opposition side of politics in the, in the Israeli regime, there is not much sign that they are they have any sort of clear plan. They're not going to get rid of Hamas. They're not going to get rid of the resistance factions. There's serious conflict going on in the West Bank at the moment. They, they're trying to do some operations in Hebron and Nablus at the moment too. So there, there are many Palestinians who have been killed in the West Bank. They have a conflict on their northern border already, although it's of a scale that is not going to escalate the level of, you know, large-scale missile exchange. But uh, I, I don't think they're they're really in a position to to think that clearly about these sorts of things. They're running on they're running on anger now, and and their reputation, as I said before, has fallen. Their, their pride is hurt very badly. And this is a bad situation. It, uh, it could possibly lead to uncalculated, to you know, um, uh, outcomes which aren't predictable. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and Dr. Wan. Um, so, if Israel proceeds with a ground offensive, how likely do you think the war between Israel and Hamas will escalate more broadly across the Middle East? And and is the opening of a second or third front possible? Uh, I think it's very likely because once Israeli uh, uh, the, the defense forces, they enter together, means that they would actually uh, target the lot of civilians as well as uh, the, the buildings inside the Gaza Strip. And this will lead to the catastrophe of the, the uh, ordinary people inside the Gaza, Palestinians, although that Israel has already declared very clearly that they hope the, the majority of the northern uh, Gaza people to be evacuated. But actually, it's very impossible given a very uh, dire situation, especially the very dire economic and social situation inside the Gaza Strip. So actually, it will very easily, in the very short term, lead to the very uh, uh, very strong uh, humanitarian crisis in the Gaza. And also, we're living, we are living in the period of the Internet, as well as the short video. Uh, so a lot of very dire uh, pictures and dire videos through the tweet, uh, TikTok, through the Twitter and others, uh, social APPs will go through all this world, especially go into other uh, Islamic and Arab states. So this this kind of the, the imagined uh, image uh, will actually anger and provoke the anger and dissatisfaction of other militias groups. For example, in Lebanon, in uh, in Syria, and also maybe in the West Bank and other Arab states, and also will be very likely that these pictures and the videos shot with these of the very dire situation in humanitarian crisis in Gaza Strip, the Palestinian people there uh, will be very likely to lead to the to the opening fire. 
of some militias groups in, in southern uh, Lebanon, in Syria, in mm-hmm. from Iraq, or even from uh, from Yemen, Putin. So mm-hmm. actually, I, I think once these things happen, I mean, the Israeli ground forces uh, offensive was uh, be launched. It will be very likely to uh, to to, be, to uh, new waves of uh, wars in other frontiers around Israel. I think it is a disaster for both Palestinians and Israel. Yeah, and, and, and Professor Syracuse, uh, let's uh, first look at Lebanon because we've already seen a spillover uh, of the Gaza conflict uh, there because over the past several weeks, Israel and Hezbollah have already been exchanging fire across the border. And Netanyahu warned if Hezbollah chooses to enter the conflict, it will face a situation worse than the Second Lebanon War. Um, so how likely do you think Hezbollah is to further engage in the conflict? And what, what could be the red lines there? Well, the, the red line is, is if it gets too heated or they can't bring down the temperature a little bit. Look, I heard General Petraeus today... Uh, He's not, he's not exactly a military genius. He is saying that Hezbollah has 100,000 men, 250,000 rockets that are precision with heavy armaments or heavy bombing power on them, and that they could take out the industrial structure of, um, of Israel in about 20 minutes. So he said, you know, it's, they're going to think very carefully. And I, I'm, I'm one of these guys, my, uh, gentlemen, I, I spent a lot of time writing books and thinking about nuclear weapons. <clears throat> And uh, tactical nuclear weapons what will be used, and uh, <laughs> and you can win a war with them. And I'm just afraid that um, uh, if uh, Hezbollah goes for the rockets, uh, I could see the Israelis using tactical nuclear weapons uh, uh, near near the capital and taking out uh, half of Lebanon on this. And the radiation is just a couple of days. It's not very serious. You're not going to get... Uh, you know, um, the sun is not going to be blocked or anything like that. I think this can escalate very, very quickly. And I want to just disagree with Tim a little bit. I don't think the Americans are backing off a war with Iran. I think Biden and his generation and, and the neocons and the foreign policy establishment, they think they have unfinished business with the Ayatollah. They were sorry they, they let him slip away in 1979. I've talked to, uh, I've interviewed a number of military people who've retired. And, you know, I, I think uh, 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 Iran's on that unfinished list that Americans would like to take on. I don't think Americans are hesitating to use military force. It is the only thing they got going. Diplomacy has failed. And as I say, Jimmy Carter wrote this book uh, 20 years ago, and he said, this is exactly where we're going. He says that Palestine is either apartheid or it's, um, or, or, or it's uh, a peace movement. And the Israelis, you know, in seven, 1967, they had all this land. What are they going to do? Give it back? And, and, and they were never going to give it back. And they found most of the world is hypocritical about it. I mean, Americans are not going to give back Texas or California or Arizona or Utah. They're not going to give back the Spanish East and West Florida or anything like that. Most people who conquer territory just do their thing. But Israel is a different kind of a place because since 1947, with the partition, they've had there's international sanctions there that both um, both nations, uh, both peoples, uh, both uh, sons of Abraham, I might add, uh, have to inhabit the same place. And the Israelis never made room for them. And in recent years, I think uh, the Israelis have moved further and further to the right. That is, everybody who planted a flag on a hill made it more complicated. The Americans tried to take it on by delimiting uh, settlements uh, in the occupied area, but they had no success at it. And I, I think when you have free land, you know, when people see land, whether it's religious or monetary or whatever, the value, they, they, they just kind of go crazy. And, and, and no one knew how to stop them. And the Americans didn't have the courage to stop them. So now what we have, the United Nations is, is having a, 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 an awful debate about whether we have a ceasefire or a humanitarian pause. And I want to say one other thing. These same people who are putting the heat on, on Hamas, as, as awful as what Hamas did initially, these are the same people who, who condemned uh, Russia for its actions in Ukraine. So, you know, the world can see there is a double standard here. So when Blinken went to Jordan and Egypt and other places and said, look, uh, we want you to recognize that Israel is defending itself and then sit back and watch the movie. 
And in streets of Amman, you had a half a million people protesting, half a million people protesting in Cairo. These people who run these countries are not stupid. They know that if they, they buck their public opinion, they're going to wind up on the outside looking in. Yeah, Professor so Syracuse, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we have to take a short break here. Coming back, we'll sure. continue our discussion. Thank you. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang, and I'm joined by Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China, Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, and Dr. Tim Manderson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. And we're discussing this hour about whether the Gaza conflict may escalate into a larger war in the Middle East. Uh, so Dr. Uh, Tim Manderson, let me uh, go to you. Um, we know that Iran's foreign minister has warned that as long as Israel's campaign in Gaza continues, it is highly probable that many other fronts will be opened. And he was echoed by Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei by stating that there shouldn't be any expectation that Iran would hold back militants if Israel's attacks on Gaza persists. So how seriously do you think we should take those statements? And how would you evaluate the likelihood of an Israeli-Iranian conflict in this context? It's very, uh, we should take them seriously. Iran is trying to send a message to the Israeli leaders that um, there are limits to the patience of the groups that Iran supports. I mean, remember why the US hates Iran so much and why the Israelis hate Iran so much is that they support the Palestinian resistance. They, they help them get arms. They support Syria. They support an independent Iraq. They support the resistance in Lebanon, which drove the Israelis out a couple of times in the past. So Iran is, um, I wouldn't say, it's not right to say they're all simply proxies of Iran, but Iran is certainly supporting the resistance to Israel, the resistance to the US uh, presence in the region, basically. So when they start talking about the possible reactions to a ground operation in Gaza, for example, they're talking in the first instance uh, about the, the the resistance groups that they they finance and, and they arm, not necessarily about a direct missile exchange between I Iran and and the Israelis, for example. So I think, for example, the the relatively low level operations that the Lebanese resistance uh, Hezbollah in the north has been carrying out on uh, Israeli military sites some of them in occupied parts of Lebanon, some of them in the parts of occupied Palestine in the, in the North Galilee there. Uh, those things are at a level which is weakening and distracting the Israeli military, but not at a level that's going to draw in, um, uh, say, missiles from US warships in the Mediterranean. Uh, nevertheless, it's distracting the Israeli military and it's displaced large numbers of set settlers, colonists who've gone up to the north of occupied Palestine and have now um, been evacuated effectively. The Israelis have declared a military zone in, in the north part there. So I think in the first instance, the, the projection of Iranian power is through its allies in the region there. There are also two Syrian divisions in, in the south of Syria, but I don't think that there's any great um, urgency on the part of Syria to get involved because they're already involved in a, in a multi-front war there. So I think Iran's uh, is in the first instance, referring to the resistance groups within Palestine. Remember, there's also this activity going on in the West Bank that the Israelis are doing their own initiatives, trying to um, reshape the West Bank um, as the, the more conservative faction or the more right-wing faction of, of the Israelis have been doing for some years. Um, so there's quite a lot going on there, but Iran is certainly the key sponsor of resistance groups in, in the whole region. Okay, so uh, Dr. Wong, uh as we know, for decades, Iran and Israel have been engaged in, in the so-called shadow war in a relatively controlled manner. But has the war in Gaza in any way changed the calculation on both sides? I think, I think to some extent it's become a new uh, round of competition between the Israelis and the uh, Iranians. Uh, I mean, for the Gaza, Gaza war, because uh, as you mentioned, right, that's Israelis and uh, Iranians actually, they are so called and so called good friends in the Middle East because on the one hand, they actually they legitimize each other's existence, and they, on the other hand, they target very strongly against the very uh, the very uh, militia presence and well as uh, security presence of each other with a very strong possibility. Uh, so, uh, so actually, after this war erupted in the Gaza Strip, it's pretty. Uh, they are preparing for the uh, for the possible ground offensive. 
But on the other hand, the Iranians, on the one hand, they, under the, the slogan of Palestinian freedom, or Palestinian uh, independence, Iranians calling for the Israeli to stay rational and to stay restrained from larger or larger uh, waves of, of ground forces against the Gaza Strip. On the other hand, under the pressure of the very local allies of Iranian, especially the Hezbollah, the, the Hashda Sha'abi in Iraq, and the other Shia militant groups inside of the Middle East, Iran has to do something. Iran has to show it's very assertive and even the very strong assistance Stances against Israel. So that is why the, the Gaza Strip uh, war now actually becomes the new, uh, the bargaining chip for, for each other that they have no place to stand, to stand back and they have no opportunity to show their weakness against each other. So actually, I think in the future, this, this will become the very historic moment for the relations and the bilateral relations between Israelis and uh, Iranian hostilities in the Middle East and their competition and rivalries in the region. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Professor Syracuse, uh, um, uh, to what extent do you think Iran would like to get involved in this? And I mean, if the Iranian leaders are, are contemplating the possibility of Israel redirecting its military focus toward Iran following the conclusion of the war in Gaza, how probable is it that they might seriously consider taking preemptive actions against Israel? I don't think um, Iran would do that. I mean, they're very calculated about this. Uh, the only thing the Iranians um, really understand about America, their only calibrations are, are are their troops or planes in the area, and they see those two cra- aircraft carrier groups. And I, I think uh, I don't think they want to be seen to be doing anything. But you know, the Americans assume that Iran is behind everything. During the Cold War, it was assumed all kinds of people were behind other people. And, um, you know, there is the Iranian money and the Revolutionary Guard is probably helping people out. But I think Iran will be very careful. I think the um, uh, the Americans might be less careful. You know, um, in 1983, uh, American uh, Marines barracks was blown up in Lebanon, along with a number of uh, French soldiers in the middle and in the international force there. And, and, and somebody as warlike as Ronald Reagan just went home, he got out of the place. You know, he said it was beyond the comprehension of America. I mean, even conservative American politicians could see the complexity of what was going on. They could see the, the cultural problems getting involved. But uh, this administration and this particular group in, in Washington, and I, I refer to the foreign policy establishment, you know, these are people who've been around a long time and justifying their lives over and over again. I, I think they would uh, uh, welcome the opportunity, but I don't see the Iranians jumping in on this thing unless they have to, unless their own publics force them. And I, I, I see the uh, the Persian public as a lot more uh, measured than, than the, um, the Arab publics in other places. But I don't see Iran jumping in before it has to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, Dr. Anderson, you mentioned earlier that the U.S. probably doesn't want to be entangled in another war. But if the Gaza war were to evolve into a regional conflict, how, how probable is it that the U.S. would become entangled in the situation? Well, I think there's great reluctance in Washington to send in troops. You know, it hasn't worked out very well for them in most of the rest of the region. They, they lost in, Af- in Afghanistan, of course. They, they're losing in Iraq. They lost in Syria. So um, I don't think they're going to jump into it. Uh, and, of course, what they can do with minimal casualties on their own side is send missiles in. They've done this on a few occasions in the past. But uh, apparently there are some of their commanders who have done a a pilot um, entry into Gaza, and they got shot at, and they withdrew basically. But uh, the the problem that the U.S. has also is that, it, um, in terms of Iran, for example, is that they know that Iran has very powerful, very accurate um, missile systems. Um, this bothers them in, in a practical sense. There are U.S. bases all around the Persian Gulf, in the Arabian Peninsula. All of those facilities are going to be vulnerable if if the U.S gets directly involved and attacks Iran there. Um, the other possibility is that the US might do some strikes on, on southern Lebanon, what the Israelis are already doing now. I think they, I don't think they're, they're probably that keen to do that now. And the level of Hezbollah involvement is, is such that I don't think the US is going to start sending missiles in there. Here's another thing to bear in mind. Iran has a military um, 
relationships, I don't want to call it exactly alliance, but relationships with China and Russia. So there's a, another level of unpredictability in terms of if the, the US is going to be drawn into some attack on Iran. I don't think that's nearly, uh, maybe there's some hotheads in, in the US like Lindsey Graham and so on who would like to see that happen. But I think the if there are any more cautious people, uh, and I think there are more cautious people in the US military, um, the problem is that probably the less cautious people are in the Israeli regime at the mm -hmm. moment. And if they have access to nuclear weapons, that's a real wild card. But I think that there's a great deal of caution, a great deal of reserve about getting into a conflict with Iran. Okay, but uh, Dr. Anderson, why do you think the US has uh, resisted calls for a ceasefire in Gaza? And also Biden has pledged unconditional support for Israel. I mean, won't that further escalate the situation on the ground and uh, eventually draw the United States in? Well, because properly understood, really, Israel, the Israelis are really a proxy for the US. Now, Biden has said this many times. He said that if Israel didn't exist, we would have to create it. It is a, it is a colony created by the English or created by the Anglo-Americans, if you like, propped up with weapons and finance from uh, the Anglo-Americans and, and some of the European partners. And it's there to, to be a forward base for their influence in the region. They're using the Israelis to, one, to divide Palestine, but also to try and uh, exert pressure on other states in the region to try and dominate the region. This was at the core of the their so-called New Middle East policy, which was announced in 2006 by Condoleezza Rice. It was really, you know, the the, the, the allies of the US, the, the more powerful allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel, were going to be a, a way in which they would exert a, a, an influence on the whole region. They'll talk about freedom and all sorts of things like that. But really, it led to this series of wars. The only really successful one was in Libya. They managed to destroy Libya. But, uh, you know, the Saudi war on Yemen has failed and is in, a, in an awful an awful uh, limbo at the moment with still a siege on the Yemeni people. So um, I don't think that I don't think that really um, there's great enthusiasm to start yet more conflicts because their track record hasn't been very good. Mm -hmm. OK, so Dr. Wong, uh, what do you think is Biden's end game in Gaza and, and does it has has it got a plan uh, for the future of, of, of Gaza? I think his plan uh, from his own perspective, especially from the United States' own perspective, uh, I think the United States hopes that he's really put and the very possible ground forces uh, offensive against the Gaza Strip and also to end the very possible escalation of crisis between Israelis and Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, because uh, if, if this goal could be realized, and on the one hand, uh, that the United States could uh, play the very role of mediating uh, between the different sides and hope to rescue the very uh, the, the hostages uh, taken by Hamas, the hostages of both including Americans uh, taken by Hamas, uh, so they, 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 have, they might have this opportunity. And on the other hand, the United States would continue their efforts to bring the Arab states and, and Israel together to formalize their ties, especially and normalize their ties, especially we know that uh, before this crisis uh, in Gaza, that there were rumors, uh, there were rumors, very strong rumors that uh, Israel, Israel and, and Saudi, Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia, Arabia, they will uh, establish the very diplomatic relations within their short term. But, but with, with this escalation that the war uh, erupted, uh, everything became impossible. So I think the United States hopes to bring to end all these possibilities of the escalation, hopes to bring back to normal. But again, as we, uh, so we have to also stress that the United States played is, is a very important role, but actually that, that his only decision, the United States' decision, to turn, is really determined by the decision from Aviv, from Jerusalem. From Gaza Street, not only determined by Washington itself, Washington just played a very uh, important role, but not a determining role in this conflict. Because it's a war between Israelis and the Palestinians in Gaza Street, not the war between Americans and the Arabs. Okay, so Professor Syracuse, um, Biden actually said at a news conference on Wednesday that there's no going back to the status quo as it stood on October 6th. So what did he mean by that? And, and what is the U.S. plan, particularly of, with regard to the future governance of Gaza? Well, what he was saying was that the, um, the status quo had ended. You know, the Israelis had caged the um, Palestinian in this space about the size of Philadelphia. And um, 
whatever they were doing there for the last 15 years wasn't where it means that they can't go back to that. Something else has to replace it. And um, they're going to have to think of a, another way. I mean, this might be the great opportunity for the international community, whatever the international community is. I don't know what it is sometimes uh, to to sit down at the table and, and make sure that there is some kind of permanency for Palestinians. It'd be a good time for international peacekeepers to come in, such as China and other people can have done in the past. Uh, they can do a wonderful job here. But he um, he, he just he, he says we can't go back. And there's one other thing I'd like to mention that we haven't talked about. In addition to the issue of uh, Zionism or uh, Jewish nationalism, which has uh, all its legitimacy uh, in, in the uh, later part of the 19th, early 20th century. We have in the United States uh, a Christian Zionism, that is the, the commitment of the evangelical Americans to the maintain, maintenance of Israel to the last day. You know, Israel has to be in place so it can convert and to, to Christ and all that kind of stuff. And, and so there is, uh, to contradict myself a little bit, uh, the foreign policy establishment um, is in control of all this. And they're very mindful of these uh, conservative Christians in America who want to make damn sure that the, the Israelis don't fall off the map or they don't disappear. So there'll be that enormous political pressure. And to tell you the truth, sometimes I think a lot of people in America who are dealing with this problem and a lot of people in the world who are dealing with this problem are waiting for the 2024 election. I mean, everybody reckons that if if Trump gets in, I mean, he might get in, even if it's from jail, uh, he's going to do 180 degrees on all this. You know, uh, Trump's got a very different view of the world. It's not about uh, America first. It's about what's best for America or he sees it, which is nothing new in the world, as a matter of fact. So we got some other uh, other things in play here, including the American election. And Joe Biden has banked on winning in Ukraine and settling what happens here in Israel as part of his legacy. And if he fails at both, he will be he will disappear from the political map in 2024. Okay, so uh, Dr. Anderson, talking about uh, U.S. domestic politics, actually, uh, uh, there's uh, it's reported there's an increase in hate crimes against Muslims, Arabs, and Jews in the United States, and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has issued warnings about a growing number of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic hate attacks within the country. So, how might this domestic sentiment influence the Biden administration's Middle East policy, in your opinion? Well, it might influence the Biden administration, but I really don't think that uh, putting the U.S. at the center of this, I, don't, I think I agree with what Biden said. I don't think there was, there's going to be a going back to the status quo after this conflict. It's got much bigger than previous uh, massacres, let's say, by the Israelis in Gaza. There's a lot more forces at play, and I don't think the U.S. is in control of it. I don't think the U.S. is going to decide it either, but the U.S. may have to adapt to what's coming basically and and the most fragile element there really is the israeli regime let's remember before this current conflict um there's huge division amongst the israelis themselves most of them don't like netanyahu they've done a poll since the conflict most of them blame netanyahu for setting up the conditions that allowed uh, for their security to be breached and and for that attack on october the 7th to happen and now they're horrified by the the aerial bombing on gaza and there are many Jewish people in North America, for example, saying not in our name. They've gone in, they've had big demonstrations. It's the first time there's been demonstrations against Israel within the U.S. by North American Jews. So there's, that's going to have an impact in the, within the U.S. But I really don't think the U.S. is determining the course of these events here. There is a fragile entity, though, there, and, and, and Netanyahu is losing rapidly losing support at home, let's say. And, um, well, you know, they don't really have a strategy. How are they going to deal with all these pressures? Um, they can't count on the U.S. backing them up for just anything. Uh, and, and I think Blinken and Biden are trying to send that message there, even though they're uh, publicly they're saying we'll back you up because, you know, really, that's what we do. So I think that there's a great fragility within the Israeli regime itself, which is going to force its logic onto other players, including the U.S., Okay, so uh, Dr. Wong, uh, let's discuss more uh, about uh, the U.S. Uh, Middle East policy because we know that the uh, the U.S. achieved a significant diplomatic milestone with uh, the 2020 Abraham Accords, where Bahrain and uh, the UAE established diplomatic relations with Israel. 
And Biden has also been pushing a deal to formalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. But in light of the recent developments in the Middle East, do you anticipate these Arab states reevaluating their relations with Israel, and how might this impact、uh, Biden's regional plans?、Uh, I think this round of the the, the crisis between Israelis and the Palestinians in Gaza actually ended the, the efforts. From the United States to bring the relations, normalize the relations between Israelis and more Arab states, because、uh, at, before this、uh, war erupted, there is a very trend, very apparent trend in the Middle East that、um, although the Palestinian issue is important, of course, but actually it was becoming more and more marginal, and even some of the Arab states. Who、uh, held the very principles that the Palestinian issue should be res- resolved and Palestinians should be liberated? Actually, they have already、uh, given it up in their、uh, actions, practical actions. For example, if we look at, as you mentioned, what happened under the Abraham Accords,、uh, both UAE and Bahrain, they started to、uh, to normalize their ties with Israel, and also on after the the UAE and Bahrain. The Sudan and the Morocco. They also established a very diplomatic relations with Israel in 2020, the same year.、Uh, so actually, this,、uh, more and more、uh, Arab states they hope to establish the the, the, the normalization,、uh, the normal the diplomatic relations with Israel. But again, when this round of the con- the conflict and the crisis erupted between Israel and Gaza Strip, it will become very impossible for impossible for the for the Arab states to. To talk with and to even appear in public with Israeli representatives, so it actually will end the United States efforts to bring the two sides together, and it will、uh, delay more and more uh, uh, easily that uh, these uh, that the, the, the efforts of normalization will will happen again in the future.、So, Okay, so、uh, Professor Syracuse, do you see this as a failure of the Biden administration's、uh, Middle East policy, and and how does this underscore the challenges of achieving regional peace through normalization deals between Arab states and Israel, particularly when the Palestinian cause is not adequately addressed? Yeah, I I don't want to blame Biden for everything. American foreign policy has been a failure since 1967. When it wasn't able to accommodate the、um, the two state、uh, ideal, as a matter of fact, we squandered years and years. Every administration pretended to have an idea to solve the problems, and, and Jimmy Carter had some great ideas. He got、uh, uh, Menachem Begin and, and, and Anwar El Sadat to come to the table and take the sign off the table and those kinds of things. But、uh, this is、uh, the culmination of decades of American failure. It's it's about. I call it intellectual bank- bankruptcy. And the other thing we've we have to blame here is、uh, the international community. The United Nations is not fit for purpose. It wasn't able to stop this. It wasn't able to do much about it. They're still arguing about words and resolutions while people are dying under rubble. I mean,、um, you know, we 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 and, and, and you know we got 193 nation states out there, and I think once again we've returned to the law of the jungle. Where might is right. I mean, this is what we're looking at. And I look at the failure of、uh, the international community to stop it or to resolve any of this. And there's no、um, there's no consensus here. And you know, and while all this is going on, Ukraine、uh, has disappeared from the television screen and from the front pages of the the New York Times. So the world goes on and on and on. And so we have a lot of people to blame here. Okay, so、uh, Dr. Anderson, what do you see as The most critical steps that needs to be taken by regional and global stakeholders to prevent a wider wall in the Middle East, and what should be the priorities in addressing this complex and evolving situation? Well,、uh, I think the the old、um, hackneyed phrase about two states from the UN Security Council resolution in 1967 has really、uh, passed its use-by date. We've now got six independent reports. Declaring the Israelis an apartheid regime and therefore a crime against humanity, and the process I believe should be about how to dismantle that apartheid regime. People would remember in the 80s that there was this、uh, growing campaign, and the last people to come on board were Britain and the U.S. Basically, which had been effectively sponsors of or supporters of the, the apartheid regime in South Africa.、Uh, we've got a similar situation here where the Anglo-Americans are. The key sponsors of the Israeli regime, but all of this conflict is generated by 
a system which systematically denies the Palestinians their rights. And I think the, the UN Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres, made that very clear and angered the Israelis when he made that point that, you know, what happened on October the 7th wasn't a result of just October the 7th. There's a long history of denying Palestinians their rights. So unless there's some movement towards a solution, and I don't think we can go back to the, the status quo, I think the, the direction should be the South African road, basically, Look at, looking at the Israeli regime, looking at the denial of citizenship rights to all of the Palestinians that live in all parts of historic Palestine and looking for a real solution to the historical grievances. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Wang, uh, in your opinion, are there things that can be done to prevent um, a potential larger war in the Middle East? And how do you perceive China's role um, in this whole issue and its response to the, to the Hamas-Israel conflict? I think I think the international society could do something to alleviate the intensity as well as the possible uh, casualties in the Gaza Strip, especially the Gaza human uh, uh, human crisis, and also try to uh, try to alleviate the anger from Israeli from Israeli society. I think international society can do something and has already been doing this. And China has already has always been standing with with justice and I think also standing with a very rational and uh, restrained attitude uh, over the Gaza Strip and Israeli uh, war uh, that has already erupted near, nearly for nearly three or four weeks. And China, on the one hand, first of all, calls for the ceasefire, especially the immediate ceasefire, because the, if the war continues, the escalation would harm everybody in the future. And on the other hand, China uh, urged very strongly that and uh, that the immediate international society should be reached through the hands of local Palestinians and also to establish very compelling corridors to help the local Palestinian people there. And also China has already delivered uh, some uh, humanitarian goods uh, to the Middle Eastern states to hope to, to, to help the local Palestinians and also uh, send our special envoy to the Middle East to hope to help to facilitate this process. And mm -hmm. so finally, but not the last least, that uh, China also called for the internal peace and the peace negotiation, peace talks mechanism should be reorganized and reestablished as soon as possible to give the hope of both Israelis and Palestinians to seek the opportunities of peace in the future, to seek the justice, uh, just internal and long-standing peace between the two sides, to find a common ground and the solution for the to end of their conflict and the hostilities between the two sides that have already been lasted for more than a century. So I think China and other international centers will continue to do this and hope the peace will arrive. Okay, thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. And also thank you, Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Perth, Australia. And Dr. Tim Manerson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Thank you all for being with us. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for further discussion, please follow us on Next at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.